0: spend our rest of our time together elsewhere in Scripture, and I'll start by saying that I love a good paradox. What is a paradox? Well, Merriam-Webster defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is perhaps true. Things that seem to conflict with one another, these ideas, but could they both be true? I have a favorite paradox. In fact, here I've got a picture. Show my picture. There you go. It's my favorite paradox. <laughs> just, uh, people are slowly getting it. This took a little while. <laughs> I refuse to explain it because then it's less funny, okay? There you go. My favorite paradox. All right. I was really looking forward to that joke today. It's all downhill from here. Now, the story of the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, which is where our home base will be this morning, can be told through three paradoxes. Paradoxes? Paradox. I think it's paradoxes. Three of them. And these statements and the lessons that we learn from them might look at first glance to be opposed or contradictory to each other, but in the end they will prove absolutely true. And they will also help us set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. Because today, as we learn from the Ascension, it is going to usher us into this new sermon series. And from now until summer, we're going to explore some of the many incredible stories in the book of Acts. And so this is going to start us off in Acts 1, verse 1. I'll read it for you. You can follow along in your own Bibles. It will also be on the screen. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's continue by praying. Lord God, it is, it is good to have come through Easter to be reminded of, this, of the death and resurrection of your son. And in this three pole, threefold part act of, of salvation, yet we have this ascension. God, I pray that we would not neglect the importance of the story today. Instead, we would learn from it not only all that you have done, but the part that you have chosen us to play in your kingdom. God, may we be humble and, and open to learning from you and your word this morning. We ask your spirit to guide us into your truth, and we pray it all in your name. Amen. What a story. Well, the the book of Acts is connected to a previous book, which is the Gospel of Luke. And you would have found that out in the very fir- first few verses that we read together. Uh, Luke and Acts are really just uh, maybe two different chapters or parts of the of same work. And all, both of them are, are addressed to Theophilus. And so the very first few verses we had was a very good synopsis of the gospel of Luke, basically saying this is what we've already recorded. This is the ground that we have covered, and now we are going to continue this story. Luke also, in the beginning here, talks about the interim period, that time in between the resurrection of Jesus and now the story of his ascension. And there were 40 days, 40 days between these two events that that really quite important. And during these 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples, And not just his disciples, but as Paul later describes it, 500 followers of Jesus over the course of that period of time. And we learn a lot about Jesus and his resurrection. He does a lot of natural, normal human things, like walking and talking and eating with with people. We know that he can eat and drink and do all of these normal things. He's still very much a human being. But he is a resurrected human being. He is so much more than he was before. So not only does he do these natural things, he does some supernatural things like mask his identity or reveal it at will. Teleport into and out of locked rooms. (laughs) Things that otherwise would have been impossible. Giving us a glimpse of what this resurrected body is like. But more than anything, these 40 days as Jesus offers the proof of his resurrection, the scars on his hands and in his side, his natural and supernatural abilities, there's no more debate. Jesus has truly resurrected from the dead. He died, and then he rose again. He is alive. And hundreds of people know this firsthand to be true, and we have their account here with us this morning. And so what Luke is saying, as he continues the story in Acts, is exactly that. What I am about to write to you, what you are about to read, what we are going to study together, is a continuation of the same story. So we have our first paradox. The book of Acts is the same, but different. It's the same story, but a little bit different. It's the same because Jesus is still the main character. He is still the focal point. I love this uh, um, comment or this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, It is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. The mysterious presence of Jesus haunts the whole story. He is announced as King and Lord, not as an increasingly distant memory, but as a living and powerful reality. A person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed a person who continues to act within the real world. That, Luke is telling us, is what the book is going to be all about. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but in truth, we should really think of it as the Acts of Jesus, part two. This is the Acts of Jesus, part two. It is still all about Jesus. It is the same story, but it is different And the difference is not in the focus or who it is all about, but it does bring some different characters to the forefront. Some of these different characters that we've seen before in the gospel, but now they take center stage. One of these characters is the Holy Spirit, not new or brand new by any means, but but now coming to the forefront in the story of the book of Acts. Luke has told us that that there's a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of of Jesus. John baptized with water, but Jesus tells his disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. John, the Baptist, was the one who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare the people's hearts and souls to receive the Messiah, even the Son of God. And so John would go and he would preach a message of repentance and then he would perform a a baptism of repentance to to acknowledge that, that we were sinful people and then they could repent of their sins and that would leave them in a place, the perfect place to receive Jesus for who he truly was. All of this prepared the way for Jesus and now that Jesus is on the scene, not only has he arrived, but he has lived and he has died and now he lives again. And the baptism that he gives will not be one of repentance with water, but will be one with the Holy Spirit. This is all in accordance with what has already happened. And John the Baptist, as he was doing his ministry, knew full well the difference between what he is doing and what Jesus would do. In Luke 3, verse 15, we read these words. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, they're saying, are you the Messiah? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. With Holy Spirit and with fire. And if that doesn't get us excited for next week's sermon, I don't know what will. This is no longer a baptism of preparation. It's a baptism of transformation from the inside out, that Jesus has done everything necessary for God's Spirit to abide and change who we are. This is completely going to change the game. And the apostles, formerly the disciples, were commanded to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Spirit that we will talk about in one week's time. The same story of Jesus now expressed through the Holy Spirit. It's also the same story of Jesus now with this new focus on the church, on the followers of Jesus. This is also not a new idea or a new character because Jesus established the church during his earthly ministry. Conversation we see with Peter in Matthew 16, uh, picking up in verse 18, where Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't bring this up to to get into all the the quandary or the discussion of what Jesus meant for Peter in particular, but to say that Jesus established his church. He established those who would follow after him. He, He built it, he started it, and now in Acts we are seeing this continuation of the story of Jesus through the experience and through the responsibility of the church because jesus jesus has chosen to work through the church through his people to reach the world if his story is to continue on then it's going to be through the church so the book of acts tells us that this is all about jesus still but it's about jesus working through the church by the power of the holy spirit it's the same story but different now, I love, loved to read for a long time, and I still remember as, as a child, you'd read these books, and then you'd start to read some, some, some short stories, and then some stories, and then novels, and then the novels would get more complex. When I was younger, every, every story you'd read would have one main character, and you'd follow him from the beginning to end, and the story was over. And then as, as the complexity of these stories grows, and one thing that the authors love to do is they will give you multiple different perspectives. And so you'll, you'll follow this character for a while, and then they'll put that storyline on hold to follow this character, and then you go back and forth, and eventually you reach this culmination. And again, one of my favorite stories is The Lord of the Rings. And when the Fellowship of the Ring is broken, then Tolkien will, will tell the rest of the story through the different experiences of the hobbits. Well, how are Sam and Frodo doing in Mordor? Well, how is, is Perry doing in Gondor? And Has Mary learned to ride a horse with the riders in Rohan? And we, we jump back and forth from all of these perspectives. It's the same story. It's reaching the same conclusion, that same resolution and climax, but it skips to different characters. That's what Acts is doing for us. It is the same but different. And the apostles are ready. They're chomping at the bit. Jesus has been using this 40 days after his resurrection to teach about the kingdom of God. And now the disciples and the apostles, as we call them now, they are ready to go. They're saying, okay, Jesus, you've conquered death. It's go time. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the question they asked for him in verse 6, which shows this excitement, this passion that his followers have. Like, I know you're, I know you're the Messiah. He just conquered death, of course. When are we going to have this earthly restoration of the the kingdom of Israel? And so as much as the apostles have learned about Jesus, there is still more for them to unpack because Jesus is still going to do greater things than just an earthly restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But as much as the disciples are still a little bit off, Jesus does not say no to their question. He says not yet. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So will the kingdom be restored? Yes. When will it be restored? None of your business. That's what Jesus says. And so I I, I like to picture these giddy apostles ready to go. Let's go. Let's let's get this kingdom. Let's let's get the show on the road. Let's do it. They're almost sitting in the back seat of a car asking Jesus, are we there yet? He's like, not yet. And I like that picture. I'm actually really excited this summer. We're going to be going on a road trip in early July out to Alberta to visit Karen's family and her whole family is going to be there. Uh, Her her sister and brother-in-law coming up from Phoenix and her brother and sister-in-law and family are coming from Australia. We haven't seen them for four years. We're really pumped to see them this summer. I'm not as excited for the road trip though because my kids are going to constantly ask me, are we there yet? And I'm going to give Karen... the the marching orders that she can only respond by quoting Jesus in verse 7. Are we there yet? It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's going to be the only appropriate response. We'll see how long our kids still ask that question, right? Are we there? So you can understand the excitement, the passion, the willingness to get going. And Jesus doesn't pump the brakes on that passion, but he says, we don't know the time. You still don't know the big picture. Will the kingdom be restored? Absolutely. But it's going to be even more than just the earthly kingdom of Israel. And you don't know when that will happen. And so because we have this reality in front of us and this excitement and this passion and we have an unanswered question of the future, we find ourselves in this second paradox. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It is already here because when Jesus came to earth the first time, he brought with him, he established the kingdom of God. It's here today. It is a spiritual reality. We are in it. We are among it. God is at work drawing people to himself. He is saving lives and souls. The kingdom of God is growing. And when you trust in Jesus, you are a part of it. It is here. It's now. It's real. But still, we have this open question, the same open question that the apostles had many years before. When will this be complete? When will it be fulfilled forever? And while Jesus has established the kingdom, its ultimate true completion awaits his return, when he will come back in the same way that on that day of the ascension he left. We call this tension the perusia, where we live in this church age of the already but not yet Of the kingdom of God. It is a very important paradox for us to understand. But we are not waiting in this tension. We are not sitting on our hands in this paradox. We have been given a role to play. In the meantime, we have lots to do. So Jesus has told the disciples in verse 7 you don't know the time and the season of this complete fulfillment. But he says in verse 8 but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You don't know when, but in the meantime, you are to go about my business. You are my witnesses. You will be empowered. You will be my messengers. And so that this kingdom of God, which still awaits my return, will grow day after day after day. They will be empowered by the Holy Spirit again, Wetting our appetite for next week. But this empowerment of the Spirit is not just for the sake of power. It's for the sake of expanding the kingdom of God as witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so what we have read is Luke's version of the Great Commission, which we often quote from Matthew. This is the great commission and Jerusalem will be ground zero. This is where the apostles gather and where they will stay until that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And then that will explode outward and they will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then that will expand to Judea, which is the province around Jerusalem. And then that will go even to Samaria, which is, is important because Samaria is not just another province. It's a province of non-Jewish people. This message, this good news of Jesus that you are witnessing to, it's for everyone. And then how far should it go? Even to the ends of the earth. And the original language really wants us to to imagine the farthest possible distance. The farthest possible distance. And I think it's quite neat. Neat is a really lame word. But I think it's quite neat that we are standing here today. in, In I'm standing. You're sitting. In Steinbeck, Manitoba which is, for all intents and purposes, the farthest imaginable point of where Jesus was saying these words in Jerusalem. We are about as far away as possible. The the good news has gone all across the world, and it continues to spread to this day. It's supposed to go everywhere. And his followers, the followers of Jesus, are the messengers. They are the witnesses, not just his apostles, but the task of the church that Jesus started, which means we are equipped and empowered as messengers today. I really appreciate how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, keeping this kingdom idea in mind. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So yes, if we are keeping the idea of the kingdom of God, then an ambassador is someone who belongs to a different nation. And we, as believers in Jesus, are now citizens of this kingdom of God. Not just citizens, but representatives. Ambassadors of this kingdom to the world around us. So whatever um, word or phrase you want to use, whether we are our witnesses or whether we are messengers, or whether we are ambassadors, all of these things are true. And the Spirit has been given to us so that we can go to the farthest reaches of the world and implore them to be reconciled to God. To implore people, I want nothing more for you than to be reconciled to your Creator, to your Savior, to the one who loves you unconditionally. I implore you to have life to the fullest and life everlasting. And are we living as spirit-empowered witnesses? Do we implore people? Does that describe our desire, the depth of our desire to see people reconciled to God? That is how we live out this already-but-not-yet kingdom. And the Ascension also points out our third and final paradox. Jesus is absent, yet present with his followers. Bev, in her worship leading, reminded us of, of Matthew's version of this event, which end with Jesus and his promise to his followers. The last words they heard him say, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says to his disciples, I'll never leave you. And then he leaves. And I, I can imagine that that would be more than just a little bit confusing for his apostles at that moment. What, what do you mean? You're going to be with me always and then leave? It doesn't make any sense. You've just committed to me, and now you're gone? I'm really excited. I love to, I love to uh, officiate weddings, and I've yet to officiate a wedding in which the newly married couple said to me, okay, once we get hitched and, and, and just confess our undying a lifelong love for each other, we're going to go on honeymoons in two separate locations. I really wanted a tropical vacation, and, and he really wanted to tent, so we're just going to go do our own thing for a little bit. It doesn't make any sense, right? The whole point is that you confess this undying, ever-present love, and then you stay with each other. How, how can Jesus do this and then, poof, be gone? It truly is a paradox. Which one is it? Is Jesus absent or present? Well, the paradox requires it to be both. It is true that Jesus is bodily absent from us from this point forward. The disciples knew this. He was resurrected. They, they, they walked again, walked with him, learned from him, talked with him, touched him his hands and his feet, and he was literally beside them, and then he was literally lifted up, received by a cloud, which represents the presence of God, and he was taken away into God's presence. He was bodily there, literally, and then he was bodily and literally gone. He was absent. So in that way, Jesus is absent. But this absence was not an accident. It was actually purposeful and to our benefit A small group uh, and I were were going through Jesus' farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. And I just wrapped that up the other day. We've really been um, appreciating learning from that. And and the Gospel of John captures for us this teaching of Jesus, uh, looking forward to that time in which he would be absent in body. He says this to his um, disciples in John 16, verse 7. So Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but it will be better. And I could also imagine this being a fairly tough sell to the apostles. Wait a minute. We just saw you die. We, we looked at what it would be like without you. Now you're finally here again, beyond all our wildest dreams. Now you're saying it's going to be better for you to leave? How can this be true? Well, it's better because the Holy Spirit has been sent to us and to the world to convict. And again, we're not going to dig into it. This is going to be more for next week. But right now, we know that the Jesus has left so the Spirit could be sent. And that matters not only to us, but to the entire world being reconciled to God. But even now, Jesus has not left us. Left us. He is absent in body, but he is ever-present and active. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf. And this is really borrowing language from uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, who was talking to a lot of believers, Jewish believers in Jesus, using a lot of high priestly language, especially in Hebrews 7, verse 23, where he writes, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That was definitely a hard thing for them to do, to continue to be a priest after they died. But he, being Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is absent in body, but he is present. He is alive. He is active, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, which means the old role of the priests was to be this go-between, this mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. And they would offer sacrifices to, to, to bridge that gap. And now what, what the author of Hebrews says that Jesus perfectly, permanently, always bridges that gap. And we can enter into the presence of God. And God hears us because Christ is interceding for us on our behalf, always. So that we may increase in our faith and people will be drawn to him and would be saved to the ends of the earth from the uttermost. Jesus is gone, but he is not inactive. He is with us and he is acting on our behalf each and every day. And while Jesus is bodily absent, he is still very much present with his followers. The promise given in, in Matthew twenty-eight twenty that Jesus was, would be with them always, was not just lip service. He didn't deceive them. It wasn't a lie. Jesus truly is with his followers until the end of the age, until his second coming. And the reason Jesus is present, or how he is present, is that he is with them through his spirit which is why we can sing Sunday school songs about Jesus being in our heart. This is what it means to to understand and experience the teaching in John 15, where Christ can abide in us and we can abide in him. He is with us, always. Not beside us, but within us, in an incredibly personal way. And so the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And I think to understand this paradox of Jesus being absent yet present is to have a good understanding of the Trinity, which we don't have time to get into into full detail. But what we have here is that God the Father has received God the Son to send God the Spirit. It is a cooperative saving work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that helps us understand the distinct nature of the three in one. And yet we also can say that that when the Spirit is with us, that Jesus is with us because the three are one. They're not just cooperating, but they are working in complete concert and unison. So when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is with us. And this oneness is incredibly important. It's not only how we understand that Jesus is with us, it's how the rest of the world knows that Jesus is with us. One more lesson I'd like to bring out here that also comes out of that farewell discourse in John chapter 17. Uh, Look at how not only Jesus uses the oneness language, but how important that oneness is to our mission in the world. John 17, picking up in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this is important. What has Jesus just done? Jesus has just finished praying for his 11 remaining disciples. And then he prays to God and says, I don't ask for these only, not just for the disciples who will be the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Who, Who is Jesus praying for here? He's praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for our church. What does he pray for us? He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even we, as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and, and, uh, and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus is absent in body, but he is active, interceding in our behalf, and he is present in spirit because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And we can abide in the Lord as the Lord abides in us. And all of that is expressed most beautifully and accurately in how we are one together. So we should not over-individualize this prayer of Jesus or what the ascension means for us our oneness, our unity, our togetherness is the loudest message that the world could ever hear. So do our relationships with each other prove to the world that Jesus is present with us, that we are one with him, because this is how the world will know. And what I find very interesting in in all three of these paradoxes is what it means for us is very much the same thing. What it means for us is the same thing. This is the same story. This is the story of Jesus Christ, part two. And we are called to be part of that story as messengers of God. And yes, we experience this already but not yet reality of the kingdom of God, but we are to be ambassadors of that kingdom, imploring the world around us to be reconciled to God. And yes, Jesus is absent yet present with us. And that presence that, that impacts our relationships is how we go about declaring to the world that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is with us, and that he desires to be with them too. We are messengers, witnesses, ambassadors in, of Christ. He has come to this earth to die for our sins to conquer death, to ascend to the Father, and we need the world to know. Let us be the best witnesses and ambassadors that we can. Let us go to the farthest ends of the earth, the darkest corners of our community, the hardest places to be, where things are messy and full of suffering and pain and maybe even hostility. And let us bring the good news and the light of Jesus to those places. That's how the story keeps going. Let's pray. God, you are you are good to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of the ascension. I thank you for how it was necessary for Jesus to go so that your spirit would come. And God, I pray that that this would just be a bit of a, a, a taste of what is to come, as we see the impact of the power of your spirit, not only on those disciples, but as Jesus has made known, he doesn't pray just for them, he prays for us, that we would also be empowered witnesses of the truth of who you are. God, I pray for that empowerment, I pray for that courage, I pray for that clarity of thought and word, that we would represent you well, not just in handing out tracts or, or, or having certain conversations, but that our togetherness would te- declare to the watching world that you are alive, and that you are among us. We pray this all in your name.